I'm here with Lori Bristow. Lori, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. Great to have you. Uh, I think maybe we can start off with just a little bit about maybe your upbringing and where you grew up and kind of dive into uh, the backstory of your childhood a bit and where you went to school and playing sports growing up. Sure. Well, I uh, grew up in Dundalk, Maryland. I went to Patapsco High School uh, where I played three sports, uh, field hockey, basketball, and um, softball. And But I went to camps for field hockey and lacrosse. So, you know, I just, I played things all the time. Um, I actually, going to college was torn between art school and college. And then I realized I couldn't do art 24 seven and in order to be good, you got to do it all the time. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't for me. So someone said, well, why don't you go here? And I said, okay, <laughs> no, it wasn't back in, uh, you know, back in 78, it wasn't that for me, it wasn't that big of a deal. Um, I went to Frostburg. I played field hockey. I got hurt and had my first experience with athletic training. And I'm a very shy person. Uh, you don't know that, but I am. And I found myself asking questions and being extremely inquisitive of the whole situation of athletic training. So I then transferred to Salisbury where they had a very renowned athletic training program and uh, was able to get into that and continue to play hockey one more year before they told me I had to choose between doing athletic training or playing. And so I chose athletic training. So that's how I got into athletic training. I, I'm a different person when I'm an athletic trainer. Uh, Cesare can probably vouch for some of that because he's been around me long enough, but uh, I tend to um, take control as an athletic trainer. I'm, I'm not quite the introvert I can be otherwise in personal settings. So it's a different world for me, but um, that's kind of how I ended up there. I, I actually um, came to Gilman in 86 after finishing my master's in counseling. And uh, I was the, when Gilman hired me, unbeknownst to myself, and later I found this out, I was the first female help, uh, hired in an all-male school in the nation. So um, I was really? groundbreaker. Wow. Yes. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, you know, we had, um, you know, the wrestling tournament, the Gilman Duels, where we had different schools come from New Jersey and Connecticut. And, um, and they saw, I had to work with all their athletes and they saw me working with them and they talked to the coaches. And as a result, they hired female athletic trainers at those boys schools. So, um, and they actually wrote me emails telling me that that's why they did it or why they were willing to take the chance. So that that's pretty cool Yeah, that I was able to do that. Not, no, and look, I didn't know that going into it. I'm not going to lie to you, but uh, that's kind of how it got started. And, you know, the, you know, along, not knowing it, but along the way, I've kind of broken some other barriers with female 
at being a female athletic trainer as well. So that's kind of been my story. I started um, doing athletic director stuff in 93 or 96. I think it was 93. In 93, um, I was an assistant. Timmy Holly was an assistant at that time too. And, you know, as years went on, I did more and more while still doing that, being a full-time athletic trainer. Hmm. So my role has uh, kind of developed over the years. I've done other things it's, at Gilman too. I've taught health class. I've done, I've taught athletic training classes. I've done, I've taught, I've been taught swimming to lower school. Or, I've been involved in um, admissions. Mm-hmm. So, you know, someone says you want to do this. I usually say yes. And I, you know, get, get another feel for the school. Wow. So, so you, that's kind of how we got here. You've given me a lot of, uh, a lot of things to ask you about, a lot of questions. Okay. Uh, the f- first thing I would kind of want to rewind a little bit to just playing sports growing up and what influences you had and on you as you were a child to get into sports in the first place. I was your typical tomboy. I was into everything. I mean, you know, played flag football, played, I skated. You name the sport, I played it. I mean, I didn't play golf, though, until I was in college. But, uh, you know, and played racquetball and um, handball in college, you know, but we just, it was, there was no real influence. I just went out and played. Mm-hmm. That's what you did at my, back in the old days. Go Jake, outside you, in the neighborhood. You just went out and played. I mean, you know, there were a lot of, you just go, went to a pickup game or something like that. But, uh, we had recreational sports, which were always big, but I was always doing something yeah. and never one sport, but you know, I did okay. But never one sport. Was what was the sport that you enjoyed the most? Field oh, hockey. I don't know. Perhaps. Yeah. I don't know. I, you know, I was. I that was uh, where I seemed to get my accolades was field hockey. I don't know that, it, you know, it was going to be the one I enjoyed the most. But I was always also a, def, a defensive player in almost everything I did. I wasn't the one that had the aggression to go score. Hmm. You know, I was more like, you know, the defender. I, I mean, that's, I always played defense in almost everything I did. Wow. And I was always better at defense. So when you got to college, what was the injury that, I guess, got you into I athletic no training? My, it's a good question. I think I broke my finger or something. I don't know. Hmm. So it was, uh, it was somewhat honestly, minor. Yeah. In the big scheme of things, yeah, it was. But it was... It was my first experience, um, you know, being exposed to an athletic trainer and what they did and how it worked out. And um, obviously that, then I just started doing some research and that's why I transferred. What do you think you it know? was about athletic training that attracted you, excited you as somewhat of an introvert that kind of got you, got you going and excited? It's a good question. Um, and I'm not sure, but probably the medical side of things uh, combined with sports, which was always a love. Like I said, it was between athletics and art. 
uh, those were my two passions, which I know you know a little bit about. So, um, but I just chose to go the athletic route instead of the art route. Still kept it in there a little bit for a while and then dropped it later, but I've come back a couple of times. Um, but there's, I, I don't know. I just noticed the difference in myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't say there was, I don't know why it, it worked out that way or why I respond the way I do, but it, I noticed the difference and I figured that that was a sign for me to go that route. Um, and it's worked for me. <laughs> yeah. It's so. interesting. Do you remember the, the trainers that you were, I guess, working with that you, that influenced you or is it the actual subject matter that appealed to you the most, not the people? Well, no, initially it was, the subject. And then I've had some very influential um, mentors in athletic training. Um, The first one was Hunter Smith, who I had as an undergraduate, and then he left to be the head athletic trainer for what became the Indianapolis Colts. He and uh, I also had another mentor that was John Lopez, who was the head athletic trainer for for the Baltimore Colts. Um, and worked in, uh, developed Towson Sports Medicine. He was the founder for that. And I've had um, great team doctors with Joe Martiri and Bill Howard, um, who let me spread my wings and trusted me enough and uh, knew that when I said we had a severe injury, they knew I wasn't blowing smoke. Um, and quite honestly, people took a chance on the female like Reddy Finney. Um, when I interviewed with Sherm Bristow, who was the athletic director at Gilman back in 86, he, he had interviewed several other people and um, he, Mr. Finney was, was on a summer vacation up in Maine. And before he offered me a position, he had to clear it with the headmaster. And, and to Mr. Finney's credit, he said, is she the best person? for the job, not the best female, but the best person. Mm-hmm. And he said, yes, I think so. So those were the influence. I mean, really those men are the ones that influenced me the most throughout my life. Hmm. Yeah. It's interesting how, um, like why that would, why that would be, but I guess it was just the times at an all boys school that it was such a barrier of entry to be a female and, athletic training. Um, so if you are attracted to athletic training, like what do you, how do you, I guess, advance your, the early stages of your career and I guess, gain the trust to be the athletic trainer? Like, what do you have to, what do you have to do to become a trainer? Oh, well you have to have, well, it's different now than it was in 86, but back in, or back in 86 and the 80s, let's just call it the 80s, <clears throat> you could go to a um, accredited curriculum and have major in athletic training, or you can just have an undergraduate and you have to uh, complete certain classes and 3,000 hours of study um, in it. Um, that's the internship route. I went the internship route um, through Salisbury and then you take a national exam and the national exam you have to 
pass by, I think it's 80% or better. Um, and I didn't pass the first time. And I was blown away. It's very disappointing when that happens. But that passed. And then, you know, to get better at the craft, you just have to do it and stay on top. We, we have to, as an athletic trainer, you have to complete 50 continuing education units every two years. Um, so you have to stay abreast of what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, and being involved in not just like Gilman, but putting yourself out there and volunteering for other areas. Like, you know, I've worked with the U.S. figure skating. I've worked with U.S. gymnastics when they came to town. Um, you know, they asked for volunteers. You do that, you know, it gets exposure to other, the other sports that you might not see, you mm -hmm. know, in order to learn. So it's, um, that's, that's kind of how it works. Um, the athletic training was a male dominated area, a profession early on. And now it's, it's probably 50, 50, leaning a little bit more toward, uh, females in that regard. But the problem is it's a very demanding and taxing job. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you coach, so, you know, when you show up, athletic trainers show up at least two hours before a coach shows up and then you leave when the game or the practice is over and the athletic trainers there another hour or two hours after that game or practice is over. Right. Um, and it's just, it's, they're very long hours in doing that job. And in order to get into the profession, you've got to realize you're going to work those hours. I mean, if you're going to be good, um, you, you have to dedicate the time to it. And uh, there's a difference. I mean, that not all, not everyone um, has that kind of work ethic as I do. There are some people that come through as, as interns from colleges, because we always have interns, um, that don't want to do that or too concerned about going to happy hour on Friday night and meeting their friends. You yeah, know? yeah. You don't, you, that's never a concern. You can't, you can't even consider. That's not something you think about as a real athletic trainer. Yeah, you almost have so to that, be uh, obsessed with it. To... Well, it's just in order to do it right, you can choose. You, you don't have to be all consumed by it or or feel like you're. it's the right way to do it. You can cut corners. I know a lot of people who do. Mm -hmm. um, but it wasn't the way I was taught, so... You know, so that's what not do you, how I do it. What do you think that you uh, you liked most about athletic training? Because as you said, long hours, you've got to be there early. You're doing a lot, it seems to me, of the same procedures, taping ankles and, you know, getting the, 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 the guys at Gilman ready to go for their practices. Uh, it's got to be pretty stressful being on the sideline thinking about, you know, what could happen in – in a practice or a game, what do you think? That's just really... it. It's, it's responding. It's the immediate response to an injury mm -hmm. and how you handle it and, um, how you treat it and then rehab it later. And your, your reward is seeing that kid back out there, mm -hmm. you know, playing at a hundred percent and, but the small rewards are seeing them get better too. I mean, in the rehab. So there are some guys that get hurt and they, they struggle mentally 
more with the injury than the physical piece of it. And that's the harder thing to, to break through. Mm-hmm. You have to find ways for them to um, gain success in small increments. Uh, so they're, so you change their mental attitude about the injury. And that takes longer time than quite frankly, curing them physically or getting them stronger physically from whatever injury they had is the mental aspect. So it's, it's the whole thing. Um, the, I, I think we've been, I've been very lucky being at Gilman, the boys, um, quite honestly, once I, um, I don't know how to say, so Peter Kurtovich, I'm, I'm jumping a little bit, but Peter Kurtovich was in my first class. So he was, um, he was the three star athlete and he was a very strong senior. Um, and I was able to quite frankly, get him a little bit on my side. Um, I was, I was a tough person. I was tough on the guys and I used peer pressure to the nth degree and it worked, but I got Peter on my side and, um, quite frankly, from then on, it just went smoother and the boys kind of keep the other boys in, in, in the right frame of mind when they come in the athletic training room. So after all those years, it just, it just fed, I never had problems. Um, but to go back to what really draws me to it, I probably being able to react mm-hmm. and, um, react in the right way, quite frankly. Now, after a big injury, no matter what it is, I always go back and think, what could I have done to improve what the outcome was? Did I miss anything? Um, you know, how could I have made this situation better? And really try to critique myself to see, you know, what did I do wrong? Or, you know, if and really try to find something that I did wrong. And quite frankly, I would find things that I could have done better, but that's how I feel like you have to get, you can't be complacent with how you, how you are in any profession. You have to constantly try to grow. Right. Um, what are, I guess, what are some of those questions that you ask yourself in retrospect about what you could have done better? So I'm trying to think about someone has an injury, they're down on the field, you treat them, you test them. Like what are some of the mental checks that you have after the fact? So when someone has uh, gets injured, and we're talking a pretty severe injury, there is a litany of things, tests you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to do it. And um, basically after the fact, I go through that mental checklist because when you when you come across the injury, you're not thinking about that list. You're not saying, okay, what well, now, what was that? You mm-hmm. don't do that you just do, you just act and you respond and you, you know, it's all comes natural. So afterwards, then you kind of think of that checklist. Okay. Did I do this test? Did I do that test? Did I, you know, depending on what the injury is to, in order to make sure I've, I did it all correctly, or, you know, should I have done something else instead, that kind of thing. So coming across a severe injury, it's, it's all reactionary. It's what you've been taught that comes into play and you just act. And that's why you need, in my opinion, 
it's important to critique yourself afterwards because it is such a reactionary thing. Hmm. Um, in your career as an athletic trainer, is there a, a moment or an incident that you would describe as your proudest, your proudest moment as a trainer or most memorable maybe? I've, ha- I've, I've been an athletic trainer for a long time, so picking one would be tough. Um, I, I can tell you that, you know, the two that where I probably had the most impact was we had a, we had a student who had a severe asthma attack early in the, um, it was either early March or late February. And uh, it was a rainy day. He was on the oval. He knew it was misty and rainy. And if you have asthma, that's a terrible and cold, mm-hmm. terrible combination for an asthmatic. And um, he had an attack and he couldn't use his, inhal- <clears throat> his inhaler. And the kids took him into the locker room. I was called up, the locker room across from the cage. So I was called up to there and uh, we put him in, the, in a hot shower because the moist air opens up your lungs and your airways. And we got him breathing well, and we got him to try his inhaler again, and then it didn't go, but we got him under control. So he was finally breathing normally and everything was fine. We put him on a stretcher and um, put him de- took him down the hallway to where the athletic training room is now. And when he got into the athletic training room, he stopped breathing. So we, you know, I did CPR on him. Um, I had a student call 911. And the kids, it's, it's interesting because all the kids that were in the athletic training all of a sudden left. <laughs> yeah, they just left. Um, but um, he came back. You know, he survived. 911 came, we took him out. Um, and I got a call from his dad later on and told me the reason why the inhaler wasn't working was because he had bronchitis. And so his, his bronchial tubes were already swollen and they weren't getting down there. And the asthma just triggered, I mean, it just made it that much worse. And he actually suggested that I go get checked out. Actually, two days later, I end up with bronchitis oh, man. because of doing CPR. But, you know, and no one would tell the kid what happened, you know, when he came back to school and he had no memory of what happened. So um, I believe in telling him the truth. So I told him, I, I told him what happened. And, you know, he was, he thanked me because he was, every time he had to go to the bathroom, a teacher would make sure another student went with him because they were afraid he was going to have a severe asthma attack and stop breathing again, mm-hmm. you know? So, you know, he needed to know why everyone was treating him weirdly, quite frankly. Yeah. I got some backlash from some people, um, but ultimately they supported me and the school supported me in doing that. So um, obviously one of the other really severe injuries was that football player from St. Francis. Um, and I, even though I was, I came in on it halfway through, um, if it weren't for what I did, the kid would be paralyzed. 
he'd be a quadriplegic right now. And um, it, it's so those type of things, you know, I, I know what I did and how I did it. Um, when the athletic training room was being built where it is now, back in 1989, were you even alive then, by the way, Jake? I don't think so. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, a guy was putting in a toilet and cut his finger off. And the athletic training wasn't really quite there. And he came in and he came in and said, can you help me? Can you help me? And I cut my finger off. I'm like, yeah, come on, let me see. And he opens it up and it literally falls off with a little skin holding on. And um, I said, okay, well, let me pull the chair up. We didn't have any furniture. I had a plastic chair and a sink at that time. The athletic training wasn't finished. And I didn't have a phone. I had to leave and go to the pool to call 911. And I had to ask him if I could leave him because, you know, he's an adult, but he could go into shock. So I wrapped him up really well and went and called 911 and then came back. And, um, you know, he got taken to the hand center. But, you know, those are the kind of things that kind of stand out that there have been other injuries along the way, some other bad injuries or things that we figured out that no one else could figure out, um, you know, that stand out. But the ones that kind of left the mark, we had a kid who, middle, lower school kid stubbed his toe because when they would get in the wrestling room, they didn't have wrestling shoes and they had socks on. And he kind of stubbed his toe in between the mats in the mm-hmm. wrestling room. And I was at a meeting, administrative meeting, and I came back in and and my assistant, Amanda, was working on him and his sock was all blocked, uh, bloody. And so I go and we go take off the sock and his toe falls off and it's hanging on by some skin. And he literally evolved his big toe. Mm. It just came off. And um, so I splinted him up. His name is Tommy. We call like Tommy you know, big toe after that. Um, so we split him up and um, I did such a, and I took him to the hospital because his parents had, I, I contacted them and there, there were some problems. So I took him to the hospital, told him where I was and, and the emergency, and even though I contacted our team doctor, the emergency room did not act. And when they did act, um, his father had shown up and I left at that point and they x-rayed him and they didn't see anything. They didn't see where it was, fra- you know, fractured. So then the guy, the doctor takes off the wrapping that I had on there and he touches the big toe and it just falls down. Um, but I had done such a great job that they, they didn't know that it was fractured. Wow. Cause I put it together so well. And it was that, uh, so it, it truly, he, he ended up playing football. I mean, he, the toe just didn't quite grow as big as the other, in the, as the other foot, but he was okay. But we did change our policy about kids in the wrestling room <laughs> with the socks. Hmm. Wow. You've seen some gnarly injuries. That's for sure. I would, <laughs> I would guess that football would be the scariest sport to be a trainer for. Um, well, I guess wrestling too. Wrestling, it wrestling is 
wrestling is. Wrestling is. Yeah, and the reason is you you have a time limit for how you can evaluate an injury on the mat. So there's the when they start injury time, you have a very short window. So you have to know when an when the wrestler's wrestling and they're being placed in a position, you have to know what injury can come from that being in that position. Mm -hmm. So that when you get on the mat, you already have an idea of what he did before he talks to you. Hmm. So you're given, because you got to make a determination if they can continue to wrestle or they disqualify. So most wrestlers never want to stop wrestling. You know, that's for sure. And, I had a, a, it was a really high level Mount St. Joe wrestler in a tournament. I, th um, I think it was the MIA way back and um, he tours ACL and he didn't believe it when I told him that he tours ACL and he was determined to continue to wrestle. So I talked to the parent, I mean, we let him wrestle because he had mentally, he had to get over the hurdle that he couldn't. So I was right there. I let him wrestle a little bit longer. And then he one jump step and he knew right then he couldn't go anymore. But in order to get him to that place of acceptance that he was hurt and he couldn't wrestle anymore, I had to let him do it, but in a safe way. So you know, those things happen too. Hmm. So many split second judgment calls that I feel like yeah. I think that's probably why it takes, I guess, so long to develop the trust to be on your own out there because you have to learn the sport. You have to know what could happen in this situation or this position. And then you have to be ready, confident to make a split second call. It's so, so tough. And, it, you know, it. you really you really need to know the sport. I mean, yeah. including the rules, you know, I mean, you really need to know the sport. I mean, and, you know, out of all the sports, I like football probably the most, but I would say in each season, you know, it's football, wrestling and lacrosse. Well, why is that? It's because they have the most severe injuries, <laughs> football, really? wrestling and lacrosse. Yeah. They have the most injuries. So you like so you like being a trainer for the sports with the most severe injuries, you would say? Yes. Why? Yeah. Well, because they challenge you the most. You're going to have to make the most, you know, the biggest decisions. They're the ones that are you're going to have to do the most work for. Yeah. I, I, just kind of imagining myself in a position of an athletic trainer, I, would, I feel like I would be relieved. I feel like it would be a victory if, the game ends and no one gets hurt and I didn't have to do anything. It gets boring. Yeah. You know, yeah. but so for instance, today's a rainy day, right? If you had a lacrosse game, you're probably going to have more. Um, you could have some strains, muscle strains because of slippage on the field. And you'll probably have bruise, more bruises, but you're not going to have severe injuries like breakage and fractures and things like that because your momentum has been decreased by the wet surface mm -hmm. that sort of thing i mean there are 
the environment plays a huge role in what goes on too, by the way, of how you handle things. So, um, you know, what you're looking at is athletic trainer. We had a, a great game down, um, it was against St. John's in the, and they have a, their football field is down in this bowl. And I don't know if you played lacrosse at St. John's in DC, but it sits down in a bowl. And in early in the summer or, you know, August in a preseason, in a preseason game or a, you know, early game in August, the um, humidity just hung and it was also a little wet. It was very wet and they had the best team, but it was all decided at the line because it was so wet and no one had any footing and it was grass. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we didn't come away with a lot of injuries, um, but it was a, it was an incredible game. But what happened is because of all that humidity, we also had kids dropping with heat exhaustion. Hmm. So one, that one football game, we had like six kids. We had to pull from the game and treat uh, the Dr. Howard and I for heat exhaustion. And they had more than that, by the way. But, uh, you know, we did our best to keep them hydrated. And, you know, so the environment, it, you know, you, you look at a lot of things for treating injuries and baseballs, one of the, one of the simplest things can keep a baseball player out, a pitcher out forever, and that's a blister on its throwing hand. Hmm. I mean, something that simple yeah. can hurt that much and hurt a team that much, right? Right. Because now they're totally out of the rotation. It shortens the rotation. Um, and then you have to work on the other guys to make sure they are able to go because it's a shorter rotation. Hmm. Can, I, um, can I ask what has been, I guess, the scariest moment for you as a trainer over the years? I, I'm honestly doing CPR um, and that's on, on a real victim, <laughs> you know, so I'm one for two. So the, the one I described, and then I was uh, outside, I was in eating breakfast one day, my husband left to go to work and I was had had sweatpants on or something, sweats on, and he he grabbed me. And back then, there so, the cell phones were big. Again, you may not have been born back then, but uh, the cell phones were big. And he grabbed me and said someone had dropped around the corner, and there was a group of people. And so I went, and um, basically the guy had stopped breathing. He was taking a walk with his wife and had a heart attack. As it turns out, he had a pacemaker, but he had stopped breathing. And I did, no one, everyone was standing around and no one did CPR. And so I jumped in and, and started on this stranger that I didn't know and had someone else call 911. The wife just wanted to put nitroglycerin under his tongue, which you, you can't do at that stage. That's not gonna make a difference. Um, and in this particular case, the guy actually, his heart started briefly and he smiled at me, hmm. which was really, really strange. And then he stopped breathing again and heart stopped again. And I started up again, you know, so he ended up passing on 
And the only thing that would have helped him was an AED. Mm -hmm. And at that time, there were very few AEDs out there, not even in ambulances. They didn't have, not every ambulance had an AED. So that was the only thing that would have helped them because of the pacemaker. Hmm. So I'd say, you know, doing CPR, because that's the life and death situation. I can deal with um, a dislocation. A lot of people can't, you know, see some malformation of a joint. A foot pointed the wrong direction or you know elbow or something that's okay i mean i I'm, i don't have a problem with those things right. but knowing that doing cpr you might lose somebody yeah yeah that's the hardest one hmm. um so something that you said earlier that is interesting to me so beyond the physical i guess remedies that you practiced and you know and you can deal with, I think, the mental component of being an athletic trainer and helping athletes rebound mentally is super hard to imagine and difficult. I'm thinking about one of my advisees, Brooks, Brooks Kitchell, who tore his ACL and then came back in the fall after months and months of rehab and then tore it again. And just the mental uh, disruption and setback that that causes, how did you... I guess, develop the skills to work with athletes mentally? Well, I, I'd say that's my counseling background. Mm-hmm. Um, my master's is in counseling. So you, one, you have to gain their trust and you have to get to know the athlete and why they're struggling, you know? And then again, it, it's finding ways to have, to allow them to have success and also keeping them involved in the sport. And that's always been a big, I've been always pushed to keep any kid who got a season and an injury involved in the sport somehow, because you know how they say, you know, one window closes, another door opens kind of thing. Um, who knows what's going to end up happening, you know, if they're given another experience that might, they might open up to, but also they start to gain more confidence. And when they're, when they're able to stay around the same group of kids, you know, these kids that they've been playing with for a long period of time, um, they gain strength from that too. Mm-hmm. But when they start to isolate themselves and everything suffers, their rehab suffers, their mental ability, uh, their, their academics suffer, everything starts to suffer. So it's really important that you put them in places where they can have success and find joy in it again, whatever that is. Um, you know, I, in preparing for this, I watched a couple of podcasts and, you know, I watched Marcus Holman cause you know, I loved Marcus. And so he talked about his fractured clavicle. Remember he said that, Yep. well, I had this nice talk with his mom and, and him. And what we did is we got some, um, basically Teflon and, and cre- created, I created a pad for him to protect that clavicle and told him he was never allowed to fall on that shoulder. <laughs> but we did, we, we did every, we did a lot of things to give him success. And he was, he was always, as he said, very competitive. Um, but he still had to get over that barrier because he had fractured it so many times. 
and it cost him a lot. Well, the same thing would be be for Brooks. It's cost him a lot of time in the sport that he loves, but also doing other things in life, right? So you have to find ways for them to have success so that the world opens up to them again. You know, we had um, a, a guy who wasn't a great athlete at, at any one thing, but he got hurt. So he had a season ending injury in track. So he went to swimming, became a really good swimmer. Mm-hmm. And then something happened, overuse injury in swimming. And he went to a different sport and, and he became good at each sport. Was he like an all American? No, but he had success and he was able to adapt like that. Um, n- not everyone can do that, but it happens. Um, yep. I, who was it? We had one that ended up doing GTV and was terrific at GTV and then found that that was his path, you know? Um, so that that's the struggle. And But you have to get to know this, the student first because if you don't get to know them, you're not going to know what, what triggers you need to right. work on. What else interests them? What they could try yeah. out maybe? Yeah, but it also, you know, what would make them happy and, and you have to you have to listen. Yeah. You know, that's important too. Yeah. And that's that was your story too. I mean you had an injury, relatively minor it seems, but at least you were in front of the trainers and were exposed to a possible career path. I had a friend growing up who went to college and played women's lacrosse and she got hurt a couple times, I think tore ACL and got really involved in medical sales. I think she does medical sales now. So yeah, you're right. I think you have to adjust. You have to figure out what else can fill that void. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I get my kicks out of the games, you know, but I go into a game, someone's going to win, someone's going to lose. Right. I mean, cause I'm not playing, I'm, I'm there to help, but you have to be prepared for both of those things with kids because sometimes kids think it's the end of the world until, you know, five hours from then, then it's <laughs> what game. Um, but, you know, you have to be prepared for that mentality. And also, you know, how a kid feels when they first get hurt, you know, there'll be many times when a kid just starts cussing their heads off and uh, give them their time to vent Mm-hmm. and then come across and then we'll talk, um, you know, and then we get it, then we start moving forward. But you, you have to give them that chance. I, I believe that's my, how I work it. I'm not going to scold them for what they're saying or anything like that. Let them just vent so they can accept it and then we'll move forward. Yep. Uh, what have you enjoyed most about working at Gilman, being at the school Gilman over the years as a trainer and an athletic director and teacher? Uh, the people, the kids, but the people, I mean, the people who work at Gilman dedicate so much of their life to the school. Um, the hours that you're asked to do, whether you're a student or a faculty member or staff member are, are enormous. And sometimes, I mean, most of the time, that people do it because of everyone else doing it too. You know, you, you see everyone's pulling their own weight. Um, but it's not just that it's, 
you know, the students, it's the fact that parents come back after their kids graduate. They, parents come back to games long after their kids graduate. Um, you know, we, when we were talking about, we're hosting the duels and we were gonna limit who comes into the duels this year. And I said, but you're gonna have a, a, a group of salty old wrestlers that wanna be there, you know, that, that weren't in high school, you know, 40 years ago is when they wrestled or something, but they come year after year and you gotta make allowances for the, that group. You know, you have to, it's just the way it is. Um, it's that type of thing. You know, you see these people, you develop these relationships with people who come back year after year. And, um, the, yeah, I think that's it. It's the people, you know, the, the present, the past, and probably the future kids and people that come to Gilman. I mean, there's, you have to have dedication. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think you're going to make it if you don't dedicate yourself to them to the kids and, and doing what's right and trying to find a better way, whether it's teaching or and in my case, athletic training, or, you know, we administration. I mean, we changed some of the things that Timmy did not dramatically, but we added things just to try to make things better, make it easier on coaches or something like that. So, um, it's always the people. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's, uh, the best answer, the most common answer, but the truest answer about Gilman is the best part about it is the people here. Um, yeah, I, I love the kids that, you know, when I see the kids after they've graduated, you know, and um, it's always good to see them. Um, it's amazing. I've, I've gone, I counted, you know, I'm on my fifth headmaster and, you know, each one was different. You know, each one and, you know, my headmaster, even though I didn't go to Gilman, would be Mr. Finney, mainly because he hired me, but he set the standard, you know, so, um, but they've all, they all have their, their strengths and weaknesses, including him, just like we all do. So it's, you, you have to learn to play off your strengths. Um, maybe you could actually talk a bit about Reddy Finney, uh, because I think people who watch these episodes, people from the past of Gilman like to hear a little bit about him and what made him so special. Well, I'll give you an injury about Mr. Finney. So <clears throat> I, I wish I, it must've been in the summertime, um, but I happen to be in the athletic training room where um, he, you know, he would have been in Maine. I'm sorry. It must've been in the, in the fall, but he was horseback riding and on his farm and he got thrown by a horse and he ended up walking a mile and a half back to the farm and he ended up totally separating his shoulder and breaking several ribs and <clears throat> I got a call. Can you see Mr. Finney? I, yeah, of course I can see Mr. Finney. So he comes in and I treat him and I tell him that you need to go to the hospital. You need to get x-rays. You need to, you know, do I have to? Can't, I got a meeting. I got to go, you know, and I said, no, you need to do this. Anyway, the point in all this is that he, 
he had very painful injury and you know he just took it went forward and he took he came by for treatment he got better um and he he would sit in the athletic training room and talk to the kids as they came in and he was getting his treatment and you know but he was a tough tough guy i mean i know you've probably heard some stories some other stories but my other great story about him was in a wrestling match we it came down to the heavyweight against Mount St. Joe. And it, it, the, the, the wrestling match was at Mount St. Joe. And I'm sitting, I'm at the bench with John Zanders. And the place is absolutely packed. I mean, it's packed. And Mr. Finney is at an exit door, catty corner from where I'm, from where I am. And I'm, watching him while watching the wrestlers and he is wrestling for the guy for the heavyweight he's over there in the corner just wrestling and and grabbing whoever's next to him and as it was john shavers just doing these matches doing the wrestling um we won the i mean i had the worst headache for an hour after that from john zander screaming in my ear but watching Mr. Finney in that moment and the you know acceleration of everything it was an incredible thing and but that's what happened you you never wanted to be next to him in any athletic event because he would grab you and because he hit the competitiveness that he had and the, and the excitement he would have he would just grab you no matter what it was um that's who he was. I mean, he loved the sports, you know, and he loved what sports taught. That's hilarious. That's, that's, I feel like that's one of the, I guess, anecdotes people always tell about him. And there's a few pictures I think that Cesare has added to some of the podcasts of him while you're describing that doing some of the. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, you'd see it all the time. I mean, it didn't matter, didn't matter how old he was, he was still in it, you know, I mean, you know, in his last couple of years, Keith would bring him by Gilman with his wife and they would work out in the auxiliary gym. I don't know if many people know that, but we arranged and he would work out Mr. Finney and Gene Finney and, um, and he was so proud of his wife, always so proud of his wife. And she would like swing a bat and, you know, he would come and say, he'd say to me, look at her do this left-handed. She's great. You know, and, you know, she, and he'd be sitting there with his cane and, but, um, you know, it's, he was, that's just who he was, you know, to, he was thrived in the athletic arena, um, throughout his entire life, even, even as a spectator, but mainly as a competitor. Um, Lori, what was the, what, what comes to mind as the most memorable sporting event at Gilman that you've ever witnessed Mm. or watched? Well, there's a, there are a few, um, it's probably easier to take it by sport, but I will <laughs> try yeah, to narrow it, try try to narrow it down. One was when John Tucker, who filled filled in for 
as a head soccer coach, took the team to the MIA championship and stunned everybody. Um, there's the football season. I think it was 93 where every game was like decided in the last minute um the every game that season um and we had a high record I mean, we had a really good record but the excitement in that season was incredible even though you know was never a runaway or anything like that it was because everything was decided in the last minute um it was uh probably you know winning some other championships that we've won along the way in lacrosse because we came so close and could never break through um but you know the the other part of that is i think one of the highlights is what we did last year and that was getting all these long games for kids in a time when they're struggling mentally um, and just to get them outside to play uh, during COVID, I think that was probably stands out because it had the greatest effect on the most kids, hmm. um, and cons and also doing the uh, practices. We tip our hat to all the coaches who allowed, who took time to have practices in the off season, because <laughs> ultimately in that spring. You know, we won four MIA championships. That's never been done before. Mm -hmm. um, that wasn't our goal initially, but that was the end result of what happened. But the, also the end result was the kids got out and played and they felt normal and in a time when nothing was normal. So um, that was our goal. And I, I think that's probably what I'm most proud of. Yeah. You guys did an amazing job during COVID with sports. It was pretty... Pretty crazy to be able to have full seasons and make it work. Well, and it was, and, and it's getting the other kids that, you know, aren't interscholastic athletes outside to do things, you yeah. know, have fun. And that, that was the biggest challenge because quite honestly, the interscholastic, interscholastic guys are going to go play anyway. You know, it's hard to stop them. It's getting the other kids out <clears throat> And just in an environment where they can laugh and play and be a kid yep. um, was really important to us. And we were we had to think outside the box to do that. Um, but I think we succeeded and we're I'm really happy with how that turned out for all the kids. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and I think that's probably such a tough question, most memorable game because even in the sh short time that I've been here there's been so many one goal games or last second basketball games or it's been yeah I mean the basketball I can tell you tell you the season where Tony Jordan was the head coach and we didn't have a great first half of the season even though we had some decent athletes and then he spent some time with his mentor over the winter break and came back and totally changed everything he did from soup to nuts. And we won the championship. 
Hmm. He totally turned it around. And that was the, the most incredible coaching job I ever witnessed because he changed everything he did to get to respond to the kids to put them in the position to win and and he hit everything right I mean it was incredible that season um so you know you you have to name a sport and I could tell you obviously Steve has done a credible job with the tennis program and before him Jim Busick was great tennis coach you don't know him um the uh lacrosse has a lot of storied memories and i know a lot of the older lacrosse guys meaning before i was at gilman too that were incredible um probably the biggest thing is that i can tell you from being there for so many years is that gilman lacrosse only has success when gilman football has success Hmm. And it has to do with the kids playing both sports. So part of the problem with Gilman lacrosse in the recent history is that they're not tough enough. Mm. And a lot of those kids like the Marcus Holmans, um, didn't mind getting pushed around. And when you watched him play at UNC, he was the first to set that pick and take that hit. And he didn't fall down like, Oh, you hit me. Um, he took it on the chin and, but when you have the guys play both sports, there's, they're much tougher and they can take a hit and move off the hit in lacrosse. And that's what I could tell you the most about those two, um, what I've witnessed over the years. And there's definitely a balance there. Might need to clip that and send that around, get the lacrosse <laughs> boys on the football field. Because it really sure. does. It really. I played football growing up, and it really did change my aggression, willingness to take a hit. Just all. I didn't really like football that much. I didn't like playing it, but my team was pretty good. It's. I. I would say football is the ultimate team sport, and yes. toughened me up. Toughened me up as a lacrosse player for sure. But it 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 is the ultimate team sport. Um, but I've watched kids who stop playing football and only played lacrosse and watch them get soft there's no way there's there's no other way to say it yeah um they just they just didn't get used to get knocked around Mm -hmm. um and lacrosse unless you're playing girls lacrosse lacrosse is not that kind of sport it's gotten more aggressive as opposed to less aggressive over the years and you know you're going to take a hit you got to know how to respond to it and you you know, one of the things I hate about lacrosse, which is in some ways basketball, especially when you watch it on TV, because we're going to have, you know, the Sweet 16 starting soon today, um, is the fact that they get touched and they fall down. You know, they flop all over the place. I hate that. Just play because the fouls will be called when they're called. And, you know, then you get a reputation to be a flopper. So when you do get really fouled, your reputation as a flopper is going to come into hand. They're not going to call it when you mm. need it, you know. Crying wolf. Yeah. There's a um, – I'm, I'm, we're talking all about injuries, but I don't mind because I got a million of them. <laughs> um, so Greg McBride, and I can say his name because 
it was on, someone did a clip of this. We were in a ch championship game um, in, La in lacrosse. It was a playoff game. And he got hit really hard. And Greg McBride is a really tough guy. And he got re hit really hard. And the commercial, someone did a commercial on him coming off all days, like, you know, and I went and got him. And it turns out he didn't get a concussion and it had to do with a helmet, but that's another story for another time. What he did is he bit through his tongue mm. because how did lacrosse players wear their mouth guards like this, like a hook. They don't really put them in their mouth. And so he didn't have it in his mouth and he bit through his tongue when he got hit. Now the helmet saved him from having a concussion, but this, this hit was shown over and over and over again by the University of Maryland because they took a clip of it for their concussion program. Hmm. Now they never identified Greg as you know who he was, but they, um, but again, he didn't have a concussion. He bit through his tongue and we had to control that bleeding and get him back in the game as quickly as we could um, because you can't hold him down. So, oh my um, gosh. That's pretty gnarly too. Well, half bitten we tongue had, off. Well, there was a soccer, there was a game where a soccer player got hit, broke a couple teeth, and literally his tongue split like that. And this was in preseason. Um, he literally, like a snake, it, it split right in the. That's probably the worst. And you can't. The problem is you you don't sew up a tongue. Yeah. It's just got to heal. Just grows back. Yeah. Hmm. You gotta you gotta avoid a lot of different things. Just think about putting salt in there. Yeah. It would hurt. You know, any there's a lot of things you have to avoid. You just yeah, but you don't it heals on its own. Hmm. Yeah, could I guess coaches always say put your mouth guard in because you don't want to bite yeah. off your tongue, but that, I think that's probably the first story I've heard where someone actually I'm sure it happens a lot more though. He didn't bite it off, he bit through it. So there was a, there's a difference, but yeah, it happens a lot. Yeah. I've seen it a lot. That's, that's actually more common than you realize. Hmm. Um, all right. So maybe we can get now to the book rack. To my book? Yeah. What's the book? Sure. So my book is, um, now you gotta, I gotta look it up again. Sorry. Um, a dog's purpose by Bruce Cameron. I've heard of that. So that's an, it's an old, I mean, it's been around for a while, but I've read it several years back, but for those that know, I mean, I, I had a dog. I've always had a dog in the athletic training room. Um, you know, it's amazing how often they come students when they're upset. Um, there've been occasions when they've been, um, people have been allergic and we put the dogs away and, you know, so they're not in harm's way, but the dog's purpose, you know, is that it's about dog and young boy who has the dog. And then several, the dog gets reincarnated several times and it's journey through his re reincarnation until he meets his former owner again as a different dog. Um, but then they both pass on. Hmm. So it's a tearjerker. But I've always been a big uh, dog person. And um, 
you know, it's, it's kind of nice to think that they can reincarnate and come back, you know, maybe they'll find you again. Mm -hmm. But it's also about, you know, the healing of the dog and stuff like that. Excellent. Why do you like to have a dog in the athletic training office? Um, you know, think of the service dogs now. Back then, there weren't, there wasn't really many service dogs that wasn't a catch rate. Um, but a dog just has a way of calming you. Um, they're always happy to see you. Mm -hmm. You know, um, they're not. And they, when you're upset, they're the ones that sit by your side and, and then you feel a need to quite frankly, pet them instead of worrying about what boo-boo you have. You know, I'm saying that as a young student who comes in and they're all upset and, uh, suddenly it, they just stop crying. Mm -hmm. Um, it really is a way of, of treating this, uh, it's a therapy situation, bringing them in the dogs. And the dogs that we have had in the athletic training room have all been very, uh, let's just call them nice dogs. They're very accepting dogs, love people, love other dogs. So you're never worried about a bad situation occurring because they haven't been those type of dogs. Hmm. Not, none of them have been hostile. I will say as a, as a reaction to us having dogs, there have been several students who have been scared of dogs. And then after being exposed to the dogs in the athletic training room, they end up getting a dog. <laughs> so <laughs> that's happened several times too. Um, yeah. But that's why. Created some dog lovers. I actually, I was a big dog lover, I think growing up. And then, I don't know, I just, our, my parents' dog Izzy barks a lot and kind of sheds and Kind of took her for granted for a little bit, and then sure. they got a new puppy who's just a hilarious golden retriever <laughs> dog. So over, I guess when over the summer when I was home for a bit and hanging out with the dogs, I became a big dog lover fan again. So yeah, see, they're happy to see you. I mean, how often do you come home and you get a kiss from something yeah. or someone? It's yeah. always going to be the dogs going to be there, right? You know, to greet you and. Um, you know, they're always happy to do whatever you want them to do. It's, it, it's, they're, they always bring a smile. So the, the last dog we got here, um, that I, the most recent dog is a Bernie doodle. His name is Dewey, but part of the reason for getting him was my mom had just lost her husband and she was really sad and, um, I, I couldn't get her out of the funk and, and she lives with us and. Um, so that's part of the reason for getting the dog. Now that's just an excuse for getting the dog, mind you, but, um, we got the puppy and it just changed her, mm -hmm. you know, it really helped get her out of her funk because it's hard to be depressed when a puppy's jumping all over you and, you know, licking you and all that kind of stuff. So they do have a way of, of helping you mentally, um, lift the spirits. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible what they yeah. do. A dog's purpose. Awesome. Thank you very much. Lori, thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. Appreciate it. Love the conversation. Learned a lot about athletic training that I didn't really think about before and about your career at Gilman. So miss you around campus. Appreciate you uh, taking the time today, and hopefully we'll see you soon. 
thank you, Jake. I appreciate it. And I miss being on campus, but uh, go Hounds. I know we're going to do well this year. Hope so. Got a big win yesterday. Right. We play my uh, my alma mater tomorrow, Conestoga. Yeah. Well, good luck. Thank you. Should be good. All right. Take Thanks care. Thanks again. We'll see you.